I'm now in my 30th year working to restore nature in forests and on farms, mostly across the north of England. 30 years ago I left the city and my old job behind. I hung up my suit and tie and went off to plant trees. It's a decision I've never regretted. I'm Pete Leeson. Welcome to Tree Amble Podcast. This is a podcast about people and farming and trees and nature and how we could all do much better. Hi, and welcome back to Triamble. This is episode seven. This interview with Lee Schofield in Cumbria was an absolute joy. Lee works for the RSPB and manages their reserve and farms at Horswater in Cumbria. He's inspiring to spend time with and is both a musician and author, as well as being a highly skilled ecologist. His book, Wildfell, is well worth a read. I wanted to go and see Lee and talk to him about woodlands and farming in the uplands. We had a lovely walk in a wood. Spring day, bird noise, the lot. I hope you enjoy this. So I've met Lee Schofield up at RSPB Horsewater. Hi, Lee. Hello. And we're just about to walk past a sign that says no public access, which is always great when you can do that. Because I'm in charge. We can. (laughs) Because he's in charge. (laughs) And... uh, this is becoming a bit of a theme with these, um, with these interviews because uh, yet again I'm walking with a man in a wood, so uh, it's great. Um, it's a good I'm way to spend an afternoon, is, isn't it? Really. So hi, Lee. Hello, Pete. Are you all right? I'm good. You all right? <laughs> I'm good. Yeah. So uh, we've been working alongside each other in projects for a long time now. Yeah, this is my 10-year anniversary this week, and pretty much you were involved right at the outset. Yeah. I think we yeah. started talking to each other and so it's doing a stuff. Decade of conversations. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I can't tell you how much I've learned in that decade and from people like you. So you've been really instrumental in moving me from where I was then to where I am now. So The really exciting thing about working up here is how many kind of like-minded folk there are that are bouncing ideas about the place. It's, I think that's what makes working in Cumbria and the Lakes just so inspiring and so thrilling. And I think that network has really, like, really developed over the last few years and made, I think certainly made me feel a lot more supported. And Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've been through some challenging times, and maybe we'll, we'll have a reflection on that in a few minutes. But um, I mean, you've had some things thrown at you over those period, haven't you? As, yeah, we all have. As, as we all I have, have yes. Yep. And uh, so it's not been without challenge, but from that challenge grows good thinking. Definitely. So uh, yeah. So just describe if you would where we are. Once we go through this gate. Yeah. In fact, let's go. Th- let's go through the gate now, shall we? And. Um, yeah. So this is this is part of Nadal Forest. This is Merkside. Merkside One, uh, which apart from the number one sounds quite Tolkien-esque, I always think. I said Merk, Merk, not quite Merkwood. <laughs> Merkwood is Tolkien, so Merkside is One is is one of four uh, exclosures, woodland exclosures. Um, this is all within Nadal Forest special site, special scientific interest, and special area conservation. Um, and it's a really fantastic site. It's a mixture of really wonderful old ancient woodland temperate rainforest to use the um 
phrase which is, is becoming increasingly <laughs> popular. No, I mean, I, th I think it's sound. I mean, yeah. you know, this, this tree stump in front of us is just completely covered in mosses. And that's because of the high humidity and the high rainfall. And so, I always think when I go down south and you see trees that aren't liberally covered... Oh, there's a, it's been used as a plucking post as well. Yeah, Sparrowhawks yeah. probably had a... So we're looking, we're looking at a birch, actually a birch and a rowan together. The birch looks yep. like it's fallen over at some point or blown over. Yep. It's regrown, so it's self-coppiced. And then from the same stump is, is a rowan that's come out as well. And it's literally two foot high in this feathery green, lime green, actually quite, quite sort of trippy kind of colour, isn't it? Yep. Uh, green moss. So that's one of the few that I can ever remember the name of. That's Stuidium taramasirum, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, which looks like a tiny miniature fern. Yep. Uh, there's also some polytricum, some hair moss, uh -huh, that's uh, and at least two or three other species of moss, and there's a little bit of herb there's robert. Herb robert poking out, it's one of so the it's a, it's a lovely pink flower later in the year. So it's like a whole little miniature ecosystem, and, and a lot of that is down to this high level of rainfall. We're in a forest, there's a lot of rainfall, it's a rainforest. I mean, yeah. that's about as complicated as the, the, the definition the really right needs to be. Climactic zone. Yeah. And as you say, this looks like a sparrowhawk has been feasting on a small bird yep. on top of that moss. So it's been sat up there, it's got visibility all around it, so it's a nice, comfortable, safe space for it to, to eat its prey. There's loads of feathers. Yep. So I wish you what's lovely about just one part of this forest, but these, they have some fantastic stories to tell, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Intimate stories. So there's two trees coming out the same stump there, two species, actually. Yeah. Um, and then we're looking up into a canopy, which has got lovely old oak trees. Yeah, this side, actually, there's probably more ash than there is oak. And, and from the other side, as you walk up the track, um, you really notice this time of year, particularly when the leaves are off, these, these kind of grey strips of ash which are following the kind of the, the flushed areas down the hillside um, so those flushes would be they'd be moist but they'd also be carrying different nutrients yep. from the non-flushed areas yep that's it so the, the sort of the non-flushed areas tend to have more hazel and oak the really wet area areas have got lots of older uh, and in here the older because this is a grazing exclosure the older's got that lovely kind of messy look with all the epicormic growth coming out of the bases so Whereas we call you, it basal growth that, yep. that's where these are these tiny wee stems come in, in a profusion from the base and that's that's the future of the tree because when the, the, the major stem is not that long lived yep. it'll die drop out and it'll be replaced by one of those basal stems yeah yeah um, and when you see at older in gray situations it just tends to be a single stem coming up because all of that epicormic growth all that basal growth is is generally browsed off um, so there is a little bit of grazing in here. Every now and again a roe deer manages to sneak its way through or, or a tree comes down on the fence and allows a, a red deer in perhaps. But apart from that, this is, this is pretty much ungrazed. It's pretty much untouched by us. Um, there is a little trod that we're walking through. The stalker will come through from time to time. Um, but because we're on quite thin soil, we're in an area that's often quite battered by wind. As you look around, you can see there's loads and loads of dead wood and trees that have fallen over. Those all get left behind. So we don't really need to do the kind of woodland management, you know, coppicing or whatever, which is often practiced in order to simulate those natural processes because they're happening here naturally anyway. Um, you know, lovely old hazel stool right next to us here, massive great big fallen limb next to it, snapped branches. Um, Looks like we've got some branches that are stuck together with um, glue crust fungus. Right. 
which is an amazing species, uh, species which, which literally kind of sticks branches together. Um, and it's thought that one of the reasons it does that is, is it basically it stops the, the branch from falling to the floor. There's some there, really nice example, in fact. Look. Uh, okay. So yep. it's like just this, it's just suspended in midair. All oh, right. And it's so a, the oh, glue it crust, is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, so it's broken off at both ends. Oh, yeah, and there's is. another one here. So, yeah, there's literally a, what's that, sort of a eight inches of, of dead stem stuck yeah. to its neighbour. With this sort of black gunge, which looks a bit like <laughs> chewing gum that somebody's, like, pushed up against the branch and then stuck another branch onto it. Um, and the glue crust fungus is now basically feeding on that branch. And if it had dropped to the floor, then a whole bunch of other things would be feeding on it. So it's, it's, it's kind of a clever trick. And what's even more amazing about glue crust fungus is that there is a species that feeds on it, right. which is called <laughs> hazel gloves fungus. And uh, you've and showed few, me that yeah. before, haven't you? Uh, did I show you? Yeah, you did. Okay, well, it's a little bit further up right. here. But, um, yeah, so and we, that was the first one found in the whole of northern England, basically. So we, I think we went down, was there not some down by the reservoir? No, you're thinking of tree lungwort like ah. yeah, which there is also some of in here. Hazel right. gloves fungus is uh. a proper temperate rainforest indicator, as in as is tree lungwort, um, but it's it's <coughs> never been recorded outside of the West Country um, and Scotland before. I found this one up here a few weeks ago, so I was quite. That's the kind of thing that keeps us nature nerds going, really. These kind of new discoveries. Well, you, you, I mean, it's you not are, very impressive. You are you are a bit of a nature nerd. I mean, I, I went out with you uh, a couple of years back, and I was showing you very proudly one of the projects I've been working on, and uh, I was just quite impressed with the trees we planted. And, and I think you came up with a list of was it two hundred plants or something you'd seen. It was it was just an amazing list of things that we and I kind of think I recognise some of them. <laughs> And I'm not bad yeah. on my ecology, but you're just one of those... You're just a proper nature nerd, aren't you? I am, really, yeah. yeah. And, and I, you know, it's plants that I'm probably... You know, despite being an RSPB employee, I'm probably more interested in plants than I am in birds. Because I think it's the plant... If we focus on the plants, we, we rebuild the whole food chain. You know, if we can get grazing or not grazing or whatever kind of management going that, that produces a real diversity and abundance of flowers that are providing nectar all the way through the year um trees included of course uh, then then that's going to be producing lots and lots of invertebrates and they're going to be feeding the birds and the other creatures and so on up the food chain so this is the hazel gloves fungus on this tree here uh-huh. um, so it's actually been almost entirely consumed by slugs probably um, <laughs> but that's the re- that's the remains of it there so it's not terribly impressive anymore unfortunately but you can see the glue crust fungus right next to it growing on here again so this this branch right, is okay. suspended i'm massively underwhelmed yeah it's really it's really <laughs> impressive but look it up like look at look, the photos of it you get big kind of hand size yeah, it's yeah, called yeah. hazel gloves because it looks, it looks like fingers, fingers. Of, yeah. yeah this one actually was described by my friend jamie as looking uh, like how did you describe it um the hokey cokey at a naturist's birthday party (laughs) so it looked like a whole load of bums frankly (laughs) so so um one of my colleagues now um lovingly refers to it as bum fungus bum fungus well okay um, yeah anyway we are getting very niche here (laughs) so i mean you just mentioned grazing there so farming is part of this landscape history this particular wooden yeah. Might have been grazed at some point, but it's still yeah, pretty yeah. good, isn't it, in terms of its overall ecology. But loads of this landscape is grazed, and yeah. part of your role is managing the farm part of 
this estate. So, so yeah. what's, what's, what have you done over the years with that farm bit? So, I mean, I don't necessarily distinguish. I, I still consider this to be part of the farmed bit. So, you know, occasionally, so we've reduced our livestock numbers really significantly. When we took on the farm tenancies uh, 11 years ago, we had a flock of 1,600 breeding ewes. Um, we've now got something like 270 and a small herd of Belted Galloway and Highland cattle. So occasionally farmers, sort of farming friends have said, well, you're not a productive farm anymore. And in that kind of um, conventional sense, I guess we're not, you know, we're not producing anything like as much food as we were, but we're still producing lots of things. So this farm, this, this field, this wood, is producing huge amounts of carbon sequestration. It's producing masses of benefit to wildlife. It's producing flood risk reduction. And all of those things are things that society needs every bit as much as it needs food. You know, we can have as much food as we like, but if we're all gonna begin getting washed away in floods and boiled alive by climate change, then <laughs> that food isn't really gonna taste very good. So I think we need to kind of shift how we think about production and how we think about farming and embrace these, these many, many different sort of societal needs. And farming has always had to shift to meet those changing demands of society. And I think, you know, we're not, we're not alone in taking the approach that we're doing. We're not alone in reducing the farms, uh, the sort of the intensity of farming, reducing our inputs, planting more trees. There's lots and lots of people doing it in this part of the world. And I think it's gonna become increasingly normal um, to, to think about farming in that way, particularly in the uplands where the economics of the, of the livestock production side of things are so incredibly marginal. Yeah. We'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, yeah. But we've just stopped by an ash tree that's on the deck. It's fallen over, it's crashed down, um, it's, it's literally crashed through old hazel coppice um, and you've left it. It's fantastic because yeah. so, so often that would be chainsawed up and taken away fire, but you've left it. And it's got so many nooks and crannies in it, and then it's got things living on the surface. So two or three foot off the deck, you've got some, some what looks like um, polypody yep. fern, you've got um, rowan and things as well growing. On there. growing. So it's fantastic to see all this deadwood on the ground that's just been consumed by these, uh, these fungi and these mosses. This feels, this feels like the ancient site where you just think this could be the proper Mirkwood, couldn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really could. Absolutely, yeah. yeah um, we love a mess. We love a mess. Um, and we are too tidy as a nation, aren't we? This, this un yeah. People would say this is an untidy woodland, but it's, it's full of birdsong in the background. Yeah. There's loads of flowers coming up. There's yeah. celandine we're just walking over. Yeah, lots of um, sorrel and water avens, wood avens, I should say. Wood avens, and we've seen... Uh, um, Devil's bit scabious a little bit back there, some, some primrose coming up. And some dog's mercury on the way, yeah. um, oxalis. Coming. I mean, there's all sorts of things. It's great. Yeah. Um, going back to that farming thing, I, I mean, it is interesting how... I, I mean, I think there's been lots of uh, brickbats thrown at the idea of reducing stock numbers, particularly mm -hmm. now where we, we have this sort of apparent... I suppose food crisis or food security issues that raise up the agenda. But, you know, it's interesting how we place that food production into these different contexts, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and we can, we can consider food security at lots of different scales. 
So when we, when we started out and we had those large numbers of, of sheep, we'd carried out a um, nutrient study. And we looked at, so basically when we, when we took on the farms with those 1,600 sheep, we, that, we, more or less, we just kind of ran with the system that the farmers were, were operating, more or less, for a few years, just to kind of understand the economics from the inside. And so we, got, um, we asked Mike Berners-Lee, um, who's a sustainability uh, expert, and, and he uh, yeah, carried out this study. So we, we shared all of our finances with him, the things that we'd bought, and the, the, the kind of the, the labels of all the foodstuffs and the nutrient licks and what have you. And after he'd crunched all the numbers, he basically worked out that we were producing negative calories on this farm. <laughs> okay. So, so um, there was more nutrients going in that were coming out at the other end as, as sheep. And a lot of those nutrients were in a form that couldn't be directly consumed by people. You know, they were the kind of the byproducts of soya or whatever. But they were all being grown in places where food could be getting grown directly for people. They also had huge carbon costs because they were, you know, shipped over from rainforest cleared in Brazil or wherever. Brazil or whatever, yeah. Yep. And so if we consider national food security, that's one thing. But actually, we live in a global society. We need to be considering global food security and how we best use the land that we have available as a, as a species. And that doesn't necessarily mean trying to produce as much as we possibly can from every unyielding square inch of a, of a northern English drippy wet hillside, you know. So I think food security, I think, is a bit of a red herring at the moment. And it's being used to kind of defend a status quo, which, which in some respects is, is, is kind of indefensible. So part of this podcast here is I will be going to talk to farmers. I'll be asking, yeah. Yeah, as in farmers, I mean, you're a farmer, but, kind of. but actually people whose whole livelihood is, and, yeah. and lives have been spent farming. So I'll ask them the same question. But yeah, for me, I, I look at this landscape and think how it probably was once, not all that very long ago, a biodiverse landscape with sheep, with cattle, with people in it. Yep. And we seem to have moved from that biodiverse status with those people and those animals in it to one which is not particularly biodiverse. In fact, the major uplands for me are quite shamefully, you know, I mean, they're shamefully poor in terms of wildlife outcomes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, the, one, the one thing for me is, is it's just the numbers of animals. Yeah. And then with the addition of the imported fertilizer, feed, etc. Yeah. And in a sense, that's what you're saying here, isn't it? Is when you did the analysis, your analysis said to you, well, actually, taking those imports, imported nutrients and foods out of the scenario, what can we graze? Yeah. So it's about trying to operate within the natural carrying capacity of the land, which until fertilizers, pesticides, concentrated feedstuffs, all that became widely available, farmers had no alternative but to do. You know, they, they had to... to to balance the numbers of animals that they were trying to rear on how much the land would freely provide, you know, the combination of soil and sun in effect. And the ways that they did that were often very clever. You know, there were things like rotational grazing, whereby they would move their livestock very, very regularly to make sure there were long rest periods and that soil health was maintained and that kind of grass productivity was always there. But they would also um, 
you know, that would also have the benefit of, of getting away from parasite life cycles because, of course, all the kind of clever veterinary medicines that we have now uh, weren't, weren't needed, um, that weren't available then. So I think, you know, we've forgotten a huge amount of that wisdom. We've forgotten the value of shade and shelter that trees yeah. and hedges provide. And that's so basic, you know, when you put up even a, even a little timber tree cage, as we've done lots of, and you've supported us in doing lots on, on site, you know, the immediate impact downwind is that the grass manages to grow just like a few inches taller. So, you know, if, if we can recreate a landscape where we've got lots and lots of kind of hedges running across the landscape, lots of trees that are providing shade and shelter, then actually that would be a more productive landscape from a conventional agricultural point of view. Um, as well as one that's producing much more in the way of biodiversity, even without all of those costly inputs. So one thing that's never really, um, never really considered is the implication of for the animal welfare, yeah. but also its productivity when it's cold yep. or wet yep. or actually trying to stay cool. That's a loss of its own energy yep. to, to, to keep warm or to keep cool. That's never seemed to be factored into the sort of total no. farming outputs, I suppose, really. Um, and we've, yeah, we've, we've got various studies which now show that if you do, and we've seen it for ourselves, if you put a hedge in, you've got seasonality in the grasses returned because they seem to, the season lasts longer. Yeah. It starts early and lasts longer. So you're changing the nature of the paddock. You're also changing how shade and shelter work for the animal. You're reducing the animal's need to keep itself warm or to keep itself cool because it's got shade or it's got shelter. Yep. So I think these things are really interesting. Yep. Um, and, you know, that, that probably does still mean a pretty significant reduction in the number of animals across the, across the piece. You know, if we're getting to a, a situation where we are just operating within that carrying capacity, that is less animals than we've got now. And that, that is, you know, a, an inescapable truth, really. But we need to look at the kind of the dietary trends that are occurring. Should we head down to the river and put some yeah. big trees sitting in it and things? Um, you know, people are starting to eat less meat. People are concerned about the, the climate impact of meat. Alternatives to meat are becoming increasingly available and cost-effective, whether people like it or not. So, you know, I think we've got this situation where farming has been propped up through the basic payment scheme for such a long time that the basic sort of supply and demand forces have, have, have just become totally decoupled as far as farming is concerned. You know, people just continue to produce because there's always money in the bank. Um, and that leads to perverse, crazy things like us exporting loads of our lamb as at the same time as importing loads from New Zealand. I mean, it's like, it's totally it's bonkers. So we need to... The whole thing needs just a complete recalibration, really. Um, and I think that, that idea of embracing sort of the delivery of public goods is, you know, I think could be a really important part of the solution. Should we scramble down this bank? Yeah. Um, we're just heading down this almost vertical bank. <laughs> Me holding a recording device. Um, the, on the other side of the same coin, though, is that animals are part of this landscape, yep. historically, culturally, yep. but they also make it work. So I'm, yeah, what, what, where's your sort of situation? You've got the cattle in here and you're grazing them in a conservation style, I suppose you'd say it. Yeah. But you, you would still, despite what we said about too many numbers, I think you'd rue the loss of animals altogether, wouldn't you? 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean the impact of, of grazing animals and the you know the slots they make um, in the soil for seeds to get into the you know their, their dung is a really valuable food source for a whole range of specialist invertebrates. You know that is a natural process to a degree, and, and using cattle, uh, ponies, maybe pigs. We don't have pigs here, but um, something we might consider in the future. Um, um, alongside deer that is effectively our kind of natural suite of herbivores sheep have no native ancestors in the UK so all of our plants all of our animals evolved alongside those other grazers so the ponies, not along the cattle, sheep yeah the so they've, they've all got ancestors and you know although the aurochs that were here were considerably larger more aggressive you know they were definitely not your average belted galloway um they still graze in that similar way you know they rip with their tongues and they and they kind of poach as they walk so it, it, sheep are really challenging in that ecological sense because they yeah they're just mismatched against our native ecology and because they're so small mouthed and they're so selective they can pick out the seedlings of trees and they can pick out the flowers and they tend to leave behind the really coarse grasses the rushes and that's why most of the upland lake district is dominated by those really unpalatable mm. generally non-flowering species that aren't providing much to creatures further up the food chain so that's not to say that they you know they can't do a load of good and you know they are a huge part of the the lake district's cultural heritage you know they're fantastic for doing aftermath grazing in the hay meadows for well, example i was going to say yeah, about hay meadows the hay meadow system is really designed to store up future future dried grass for the winter yeah to to, to feed your flock isn't it so actually yeah. in that context they, they we might not have the hay meadows here work for, not for the sheep absolutely not yeah and and because they can graze that much closer they, they're they're better than cattle and ponies i would suggest that at doing that grazing that comes after the hay cut's been taken they can they can graze lower to the ground so they're basically stripping more nutrients out which is you know slightly counterintuitively perhaps what what hay meadows really need to thrive um and they also don't poach the soil so much. If, so if you, you have cattle grazing or pony grazing, you, you're likely to end up with sort of divots being chucked up. And, and then when you come to take your hay crop the next year, you're gonna end up with soil in your crop. Mm. Uh, and that can be a cause of, of listeriosis and, and various other problems for livestock. So, so yeah, they, you know, they certainly have a role to play, but um, for us here at Horsewater, we are, you know, we've dialed down the sheep numbers and slightly increased the cattle and the ponies to provide those sort of more naturalistic grazing regimes. This little piece that we're in at the moment actually doesn't have any grazing in it at all other than that, that occasional ingressing deer. And I think that's quite an important message as well. We're not saying that there is kind of one solution that fits all places. You know, I think not grazing at all is really valuable in some contexts, particularly in kind of bogs, alongside rivers, in, in woodlands where you're getting a degree of natural disturbance. Um, in other places you want light grazing in some situations where perhaps you want to maintain short grass conditions for lap wings or something you probably want fairly intense grazing or where food production is your primary focus and I think there's this silly debate that's going on at the moment that's like it's farming or it's rewilding and that's just a nonsense you know that is a, a huge spectrum of different approaches all of which will have different kind of merits and pitfalls so you know, we need to be getting to the point where, where different approaches are coexisting without necessarily being seen as sort of butting heads with each other. I, I mean, we talked about collaboration earlier. I, I, I'm fascinated by collaborations that we do in Cumbria. And I, I sense there's a lot of people now wanting to walk the middle ground on this. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, there's a polarity in some of, the, some of the shouty people, but 
I meet lots of people who are really interested in what's going on mm. and are genuinely asking the questions, particularly with the hike in fertilizer costs, the hike in feed costs. Um, if they're on a treadmill where they're having to run to keep their farm going and the farm isn't working for them, I think they're genuinely asking questions now. Yep. And what, yeah, the last 15 years, let's face it, we've learned so much about soils. Mm. Uh, so much more press and, and coverage of climate change. Yeah, yeah. Um, at the same time, we've had flooding. Um, all these things suddenly come together, and you think, well, actually, is there a moderated way forward for this? Yeah. That does involve all schools, actually. Yeah, I think there is, and and that can be done in so many different ways. You know, so this morning I was out with a on a neighbouring farm. Um, one of one of our local farmers gave us a call to say he's heard that we're going into a landscape recovery scheme. So the sort of top tier of the new um, farm stewardship scheme uh, and, he, and he wanted to know whether he could join in um, and, and he's a very much a kind of productive yeah. conventionally productive farmer um, and we had a really good walk around and we looked at his river and discussed what options there might be and he might go for it and he might not but the fact that he's you know open. He, he's open to it yeah. was, was really encouraging I think um, and you know he's not alone there are more and more people that are going in that direction and the more worked examples that people can see where they, where they can appreciate how people are making it work economically, taking advantage of whatever grants might be available, um, is gonna make it all the more socially acceptable and, and hopefully you know, this kind of stuff will start to snowball. And so I suppose what you're alluding to there is exemplars, isn't it? Yeah. And actually, are you using this site as an exemplar site? I think that's probably how we used to talk about it, but I think there's something a bit smug about <laughs> describing ourselves as an exemplar. And um, you know, we are clearly an outlier. We are, um, yeah, uh, we are clearly not typical. You know, we're a big, we're a partnership of a conservation organisation working with a water utility company. Yep. So, you know, regardless of how passionately we say what we're doing is really good. People aren't really going to listen to us as much as they might say listen to James Rebanks or somebody from their own community. But we are doing lots of the same things as as James and others. Um, so you know we're in that we're in that mix. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think the oh. <laughs> this is uh, vertiginous and muddy and uh, trying to sustain an interview in there we go I'm puffing as well yeah I like to make it <laughs> uh, the I think we do need to ensure that we're not preachy about conservation and trying to say stuff that we don't know neither you nor I have to make their livings yeah. from running a farm and I think that's where yeah that's where I'm I'm always conscious of the fact that I am not in that space, I'm I'm I'm, yeah. I'm funded differently. I have different approach, I suppose, but also just I have a, a much softer landing, really. Yeah, definitely. And farmers who are trying to keep their farm going, trying to secure an income for the families in the future. Yeah, it must be very scary. Really, really scary. Really difficult. And I, you know, I really hope that by sharing what we're doing let's not say demonstrating or being an exemplar but by sharing what we're doing we might help a lot of those guys who feel like their backs are up against the wall to to, to get an idea of what the future might look like yeah. for them you know so That's utilizing kind of the point of us being here really. yes utilizing different funding streams yeah. maybe thinking about that 
that numbers game where you're not talking about gross numbers, you're talking about margins. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And talking about spreading your risks. Like, yep. you know, it's very basic kind of business common sense. You know, you shouldn't put all your eggs in one basket. Um, and, you know, so leaning into the ecotourism kind of thing. So we just walked past our squirrel hide, um, which is run by the lovely people at Wild Intree, Kane and Heather. And right. they, they basically, we get a kind of a proportion of income for people coming to sit in a hide for a few hours and take pictures of squirrels and birds. Um, and the demand for that is huge, you know, like they've sold out all of their hide bookings for this year already. Kane was down earlier and was asking me if they can list their ones for next year, 2024. Um, likewise, our Badger Hide, which we operate directly, um, we just opened the bookings for that and they're selling like hotcakes as well. And it's, you know, these are really low impact, very simple um, initiatives that, you know, there, there is space in the landscape for lots and lots more like it. The Badger Hide generates around about £6,000 of income for us a year with very, very little overheads. We probably make more money out of our Badger Hide than we do out of our sheep, to be honest. Um, which, which is, at many levels, extremely sad, isn't it? It is, it's terrible. It, it, I yeah. mean, this, this, this sort of idea that, that, that there's, a, there's this lots of money in farming, it's hard. It's yeah, hard yeah. graft. Yeah, it's really hard. But then not every farm is going to want to have a Badger no. Hide. No, no, you... Uh, but it's, people it's are not the, comfortable with having people on their land so for good that, reason. It's that principle, isn't it, yeah. of, of, of having a diversified income. So um, John Atkinson that, that we were chatting about earlier on, you know, they have an amazing farm shop. There's something to see on this tree. We, ah. Hang on. Um, uh, you know, they've got a really successful farm shop. They make soap. They have a holiday cottage. They have a campsite. They keep a whole range of different breeds, including some very rare breeds. So... They, they've got that kind of they've spread that risk you know if the bottom falls out of the sheep market they've got turkeys they can fall back on or they've got soap and they're producing so they bought some of our fleeces um and they're doing a range of um sort of locally distinctive uh tweeds um that that are going to kind of represent something about the particular valleys within the lake district so kind of thinking really outside the mm. box in terms of kind of crafts and and they're a brilliant union so maria is is you know very much a kind of an artist John is very much a farmer, but between them, they're coming up with a whole load of novel ideas. And, and it's that same approach that we're thinking of. You know, what, what, what does our skill set allow us to create here that can give us a more, you know, resilient set of income streams? Uh, so we're on a lovely old ash tree uh, and we've got a little bit of tree lungwort lichen, yep. um, Labaria pulmonaria, which we, which we mentioned earlier on, which is um, yeah, one of these kind of temperate rainforest indicator species. So it's looking a little bit dry and crispy, but after rain it comes this lovely green colour. Um, and it's called lungwort because of the um, doctrine of scriptures, I think it's called. So people used to believe that if, if a plant or animal part or something resembled part of the human body then it was it had medicinal properties right, to okay. cure that yep. so so this looked kind of like the alveoli of, of of the human lung and so it was harvested in great quantities shipped off to um to to treat people completely unsuccessfully it had has, obviously <laughs> has no medicinal benefits whatsoever yep. Yep. um but that's one of the reasons why it is now an incredibly rare species um so we found i think we're up to about 20 trees at Hawes Water that have got this, this particular species growing on it. Um, 
but it's also suffered from habitat loss. You know, the, this this pocket of temperate rainforest that we've got here is is a tiny fragment of yeah, what they used yeah. to be. Um, it likes really old trees. It likes trees with a kind of particular pH. So you can see there's a bit of dog liking so up that's above it. So the acidity it. of the bark. So yeah, it likes quite alkaline bark. Um, you know, if we look around, actually most of the ash trees here are, are big and mature. Yeah. There's lots of young ones as a result of us having kind of put a fence up around this 20 years ago, but there isn't much in between. So, you know, it, there's a fair chance that this tree is going to die before the smaller ones that are around us are of sufficient size to be able to host it because it likes the bark to be kind of really fissured, mm. um, like, like, you know, like only really old trees have. So it's... Um, it's a species that we're we're um, trying to to protect and enhance here. So a big tree fell down with a big chunk of labaria on it in the storms uh, three years ago, and so a couple of our brilliant volunteers, Chris and Kaz, have been transplanting it, taking little fragments yeah, okay. and sticking it to the trees um, with a range of different methods. So they've been using staples. Um, I think tights are quite good <laughs> yeah, um, okay. and just waiting for it to adhere naturally. So, you know, if even a proportion of those take, then that's going to be hopefully quite an increase in, um, in, in this species in the forest. You've got to be quite nerdy, haven't you? Yeah, I am pretty nerdy, unashamedly nerdy. I, but, you, you know, once you focus on these small features, you, you understand an awful lot more about how these woodlands focus and uh, how they focus, how, how they operate, you know? Like, if... Um, you know, if we don't have the old hazel, then we don't have the glue cross fungus, then we don't have the hazel gloves fungus. And, you know, everything, everything is connected in these places. And that actually is why I'm bothered about the environment at all, is everything is connected. Yep. So I was out with Professor John Quinton uh, recently talking about soils and just how stunningly important our soils are to food production, to woodlands like this, you know, and how little care we've taken with soils. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, it, it is all connected, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and that, as soon as we start to lose species because of our industrialization or our farming or whatever, then we start to impact on the ability of our soils and everything else to actually function yeah. for food production and everything else. So this is, it's really critical that we maintain the breadth of diversity we have yeah. but it's very challenging isn't it and what you've just outlined there is extremely time consuming yeah. and requires a huge amount of knowledge yeah i guess so and observation yeah and presumably i mean these things are quite small presumably yeah. somebody spent quite a lot of time in this wood just looking yeah i mean the expertise involved in just identifying a lot of you know i, I consider myself a very um beginner naturalist in lots of ways you know you get to get talking to somebody who's a proper lichen expert or a bryophyte expert and you know the level of knowledge just goes so so much deeper so you know we need to we need to to make sure that we're kind of connecting in with those people and bringing people in and and, and sharing that learning as widely as we possibly can and, and not you know not expecting to become an expert in everything nobody ever is but like it's it's through that connectivity with other people and, and tapping into other expertise that will you know will, will, will really gain a deeper understanding of these places. Uh, Ange and I were sat in a pub on Isla a, a few years ago uh, having a beer and this group came in and sat next to us and uh, they're an interesting bunch and they were the Society of Lycanologists or something yeah, yeah. some such yeah. and we just ear earwigged their conversation in fact we said so at the end of the evening right? we'd said we'd had a fantastic evening thanks very much indeed they'd been talking in code yeah it was hilarious yeah 
and what they'd found on various rocks around and, and yeah, grid yeah, references yeah. of where these things were. Yeah. It was absolutely phenomenal. So yeah. we had um, the, the Cumbria uh, Lycan and Bryophyte group up here a couple of weeks ago um, and a few of the, the team kind of tagged along with them to, to, to try to learn a few bits and pieces. Um, and they learned this, this thing called Lycan time, which is basically how long it takes you to go any distance at all. Like if, if, <laughs> okay. if the Lycan and Bryophyte group managed to get out of the car park on a foray, then they're doing really, really well because there is so much to see, you know? Yeah, yeah. There are so many species on every single tree and boulder that if you want to be at all um, comprehensive, then, then, yeah. then it's very, very slow progress. But the real trick to any of this stuff is just kind of taking that time to look, I think. Um, you know, my interest in, in wild plants really was kind of peaked from having such wonderful species rich verges next to next to where we live and taking the time as I walk to look at those things and once you start to identify one thing then you start to appreciate just how diverse all the rest of it is and actually all those things aren't that one thing that I know I wonder what those things are and it just kind of opens this door to to a much greater interest and and you kind of lose this plant blindness which is something that's been sort of quite well documented um this idea that we you know we're just becoming increasingly disconnected and if we don't take the time to stop and look then we miss out on on yeah, so yeah. much which you know for me is like one of my main reasons to be is, is is enjoying all that that diversity one of my big things is actually trying to get people to read landscapes mm. uh, and trying to identify what they think's gone on in a landscape when they're in it yeah um i'm not as knowledgeable as you are with plants but you know, I can look up at a woodland like this and I know exactly what all these tree species are just from the shape and the form yeah. of those trees. And you take people out to, to say, well, okay, well, well, what do you think's in this landscape? How do you think it's been formed? Um, what's in it? What isn't in this landscape? And start trying to read it. You know, so if they go through a, a, a bunch of fields and they're all square and bright green, mm. probably an awful lot of fertiliser mm -hmm. has gone onto it. If they're actually, the grasses are more brown or white at this time of year, so we're, we're in February, then... It's, it's probably less improved. Yep. Um, if you've got walls and hedgerows, um, then those are other attributes of the landscape. You start to unpick the landscape and you can imagine what activities are going on there. Um, and then you, that plant blindness is an interesting part of that because once you start to identify different tree species and see how you've got shrubs that are lower, more copsy ones like the hazel, and then these taller things that come out of it like the ash here, you start to really build a picture of a landscape in a different way, don't you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and again, it comes back to that kind of complexity and that messiness. And so often we see pictures that represent very simple, heavily managed habitats. You know, all the trees the same size with no kind of real understory. And people will look at that and think, oh, that's really beautiful. Or that kind of arable landscape full of sunflowers. You know, and, and they are beautiful, fair enough. But they, you know, it's this kind of tangle that we're looking at here, which to me is, is, is more deeply beautiful. You know, yes. it's got so much yeah. complexity. And I, I would love to see... You know the screensavers that come on, you know the Microsoft Office yeah, package. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. actually showing what like truly wild nature looks like—a proper Cumbrian rainforest. Yeah, rather yeah. than rather than these kind of very simplified views, because I think that has a huge impact on us. So we just wandered down to the Beck again, and I just thought it'd be good to talk about just how much stuff there is in the Beck down here. So this is quite unusual even in the Cumbrian context really and and this is what we've, we're kind of learning that is is if you like natural flood management stuff isn't it yeah literally natural because that's just something there's a tree has collapsed across the beck it's yeah. pinned either side by hazel as it happens 
um, what's an old ash stem, isn't it? Yeah. And it's kind of blocking. Yeah. So it's got wedged on a on a big boulder in the middle of the stream, and yeah, it's it's basically a kind of natural log jam. Um, and one of the things that was was chatting with this this farmer that we were around to see earlier on about was um, this idea that we you know we think of rivers as being these sort of trenches that are du sunk down into the landscape. Um, and in some places, of course, that is naturally how they would be. But if you go to sort of wilder, less sort of heavily modified landscapes, you know, you quite often find that rivers are much, they're sort of sitting on the surface rather than being sunk yeah. down into it. Um, and often they're sprawling in multi-channels all over the place and occupying a much kind of wider swathe of land than, than, than we tend to think of. And, and partly that's because our rivers have been modified and straightened. This one hasn't. This is most, mostly a kind of bedrock channel. It's, it's reasonably natural but it probably is still incised into the landscape because we don't have beavers. Yeah. And this log jam that we can see up ahead is, a beaver would be ashamed of that because it's letting <laughs> water through a, yeah, a rain of knots yeah. underneath yeah. it. But if beavers were in here, as we hope that perhaps they, they might be one day, um, you know, they might not necessarily work on this particular location because the, the stream is fairly steep here. But they would be creating structures like this that yeah. bring that water right back up to the to the um, level of the floodplain either side again. Water would be spilling over the top of it. There would be just more water in the landscape. And just downstream of us, and we, we'll, we'll walk out past it in a minute, is a drinking water intake where water flows in and is, is piped through into Horsewater Reservoir. So, you know, this is part of the drinking water supply that, you know, provides Manchester and, and you know, a huge part of Northern England. Two million people get their drinking water from Horsewater. Um, and so to have beavers up here would be ensuring that when it really, really rains, it releases that water more slowly, so that intake is going to be able to harvest more. And when the water levels are really low during a drought, those pools will maintain more water and, and you know, provide refuges for fish and all the invertebrates that are living in here. So, so this is a kind of a, a glimpse of what so many more of our rivers should look like and, and hopefully will do again before too long when beavers really start to make their comeback with gusto. And the other thing about this is it's also a bridge. So we've got red yeah. squirrels behind us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this gives, allows a bridge for those red squirrels to get across the river at any, any flow. Yeah. Um, if they can't go through the trees, they can go over that. Yeah. So there's all sorts of purposes for these, aren't there? These sort of things. But, um, and it's also covered in mosses and lichens and ferns yep. in its own right. Yep. And maybe it's slightly different light levels for them there as well. Yeah, yeah, it'll be a different level of humidity. I mean, it's gonna be getting constantly splashed by water, so it's gonna have a different set of conditions to, to how it was when it was standing up straight. Um, so it's yet yeah. another niche in the landscape. Yeah, yeah, so it's just more, more mess. Um, I was talking to Archie Ruggles Bryce <coughs> um, of Spain's Hall Estate down yep. in Essex. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Archie. I have, yeah, he's got beavers. So he's got beavers, and he was, we were talking about this um, water deficit from their farmland. So he's an arable man, um, and of course with the droughts we've had recently, and increasingly that looked like that's going to become more usual, more normal, followed by heavy periods of rainfall. He's using beavers on his land to effectively balance the water flow, so he stores more water yep. for summer lows but he also takes the hit out of the water in terms of the flooding downstream. Yeah. Um, I know you've tried to get beavers here. I think you had, well, we, we worked on something together a few years ago, didn't we? Yeah. Um, but of course they have them at Lowther down the road. And, and so I assume you're watching what's going on down there with interest. Yeah. 
Yeah, so United Utilities, who we work in, in you know, very close partnership, they're the landowner here, uh, the management plan is put together jointly. Um, you know, they are, they, they, <coughs> they can't afford to make mistakes about stuff, basically. No, so, no. so they have to be absolutely confident that beavers are going to, the, the benefits of having beavers here are going to massively outweigh the negatives. And, and one of those negatives that they, they are understandably concerned about is, is the PR. Um, and beavers are still a very controversial species. Yeah. Um, and there is the risk that, you know, if they build dams and those dams blow out, then that releases a huge plume of sediment. So they need to, you know, most of this stuff is pretty well established in the science now, but they need to take time to assimilate that. Um, they're actively part of the, um, <coughs> the Wild Ennerdale partnership who are working towards a beaver release. So basically United Utilities are seeing kind of what happens in Ennerdale um, and then we'll, um, you know, that will inform their decision up here. Um, but, yeah, I mean, what I hope will happen is that, that licenses for free-living beavers will be enabled fairly soon, um, and then uh, the fences might come down, down at Lowther, um, and they will, you know, I think there's a reasonable chance that they will make their way up here because there's some fantastic habitat for them. <laughs> So would you say what you're doing here is radical or novel? Do you think you're an outlier or do you think that this this what you what, what the RSPB and yourself I mean the the personal energy you've got for this project is immense. Um, I mean you're now an author, you've talked all about it. You're a songwriter. I've played on stages with you music-wise, fiddle or guitar. You know, incredibly creative person with a huge amount of energy. And we need that energy to make these things work. But do you think the energy you've put into this is taking this into a different space? Yeah. Is it unique and novel? Is it? Is it? I, I think it's becoming ground? increasingly less unique and novel. I think it was. I think ten years ago when we got started, I think we were we were really out there. But I think there are lots of other projects that are now catching up or overtaking us in some ways. Um, you know, working for the RSPB is fantastic, but. We're a big organisation with lots of process and bureaucracy. And I look down the valley at Lowther and they just decide, right, we're going to get beavers and then, and then they get beavers. <laughs> and, we, and, you know, and we obviously have lots of very necessary, important kind of checks and balances and approval processes and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, I, I don't think we are necessarily like right out at the leading edge in the way that we, uh, that we were a few years ago. I mean, so, and that's that's what we want, you know. This the yeah. whole point of this was to kind of normalise, push things forward. Yeah. So they become normalised. Yeah. Um, we're just about to leave this beautiful rainforest, ancient woodland. Um, that's been joyful to walk through there. Um, I don't spend anywhere near enough time in woods, despite no. <laughs> despite my job. Um, and yeah, you know, I'm more used to putting saplings in the ground than I am looking at big old trees. Um, but that. If any of my woods ever get to look like that, I'd be, well, I'd be sitting in my grave very happy, I yeah, think, really. we need a time machine. We do. So as you squelch away from that and we walk into an area which is um, much more open, actually, much more brackeny, and you've planted lots of trees in metal cages here. Yep. What's the thinking here? So this is an area that's sort of been rested for a little while um, and we're just about to rested you means you haven't been grazing it just yet. haven't hasn't had there's had the occasional kind of small sheep flock in here um, but with the re reduced sheep numbers we don't we don't tend to put sheep in here anymore um, 
and so we're probably going to start allowing the cattle and perhaps a few ponies in here from time to time to to work on the bracken um, and bracken is a you know bracken is a massive ecological issue um, but i'm increasingly starting to think of it as as an opportunity as well so bracken is effectively an indicator of um where woodlands used to be you know yep. it only grows so in the places deeper soils deep it's productive soils, soils reasonably dry soils um you know if you have a look around under the bracken you will almost always find some woodland indicators so you know, what we've got in here there's some pig nuts there's a bit of sorrel yeah. um there's plenty of sorrel there's, there, there's bound to be some wood sorrel <laughs> as well um and you know quite often you'll find bluebells underneath yep. the underneath the bracken so yep. you know there are there are enough indicators to suggest that you know these are places that would really appreciate having more trees and you know and bracken, probably were carved from the woodland is what we're saying yeah yeah so bracken is a i mean that's quite a nice example there actually so bracken is really really light demanding um and in that kind of ancient primordial wild woodland situation it, you only would have got it in the glades and it's when the glades were opened and expanded that the bracken was allowed to spread. But if you reintroduce shade, the bracken dies off. There's two yeah, really yeah. nice examples of hazel yeah, yeah. over there and a thorn just in front of us that have yeah. got these halos around them, which is grass underneath. And that's a kind of combination of effects. So it's partly the shade. It's also partly animals occasionally yeah. congregating under those trees and trampling the bracken down. Um, and cattle and ponies walking through a bed of bracken like this are really effective at, at breaking it opening it up you know breaking through the rhizomes under the soil so that where the, sheep just aren't big enough the rhizome is that is is actually the way the 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 it's, if, it's the root structure underneath the ground it's how it moves yeah. through the yeah so this is a great root mat underneath what yeah. we can see here with all these 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 uh these stems of bracken from last year um pushing their way up so so yeah a combination of planting and getting the right animals in you know heavy animals to trample the bracken could could really significantly impact upon it and i think you know i've been working with guy shrubsole a bit on producing a, a bracken map there's all sorts of like clever whizzy um automated tools that you can train to learn what color bracken is and then you can say how much of that color is in that landscape and that tells you how much bracken there is or, or any other habitat if you like um so guy's written recently about a book about ancient woodland hasn't he yeah the uh, lost rainforest of britain which is fantastic um and yeah, his, his initial estimate suggests that there's something like 12% of the Lake District National Park, which is dominated by bracken. So if we focused our tree planting and, you know, woodland regeneration efforts in the bracken, that would keep us busy for a pretty long time. <laughs> it would, it you'd see would. you to retirement at least, wouldn't it? Well, I haven't got long left. <laughs> uh, no, I've got plenty of time. And I want to do a load more tree planting, frankly. But yeah, bracken beds. And is there is there no ecological? I mean, usually, usually every time I state something, yeah, somebody yeah, comes yeah. up. What and says, about, oh, yeah, what, what about, about? Well, the, the what, what about twite? So what about wind chat? Oh, wind chat. So it's okay. wind chats that do like bracken, but right. but it's refugee habitat. You know, as so many, you know, no species can be adapted to beds of bracken because they are not a natural habitat feature. Yeah. You know, so if you go to other parts of the world, wind chat, you see. You know, the only place I saw windchat when I was on, on my sabbatical in, in southwest Norway a few years ago was in Montane Scrub. Right. Um, in in um, places like Poland and Eastern Europe and things, you quite often find them in these beds of tansy that grow in between meadows mm. and things. So what they need is that tall, 
kind of fenny structure, if you like. So, um, I mean, and bracken is just the closest thing they can find to that. We often talk about structure. So one of the things I've really learned and really looked at now in the, in the common schemes we've been running. Hazel flower. Look. Hazel flower. Smallest. It's only February, that's climate change. Well, no, well, no they, are, they are often an earlier. Well, yeah. Early mm. yeah. Still feels a bit... <laughs> I'm going to be grumpy now. But nice to see them though. But it is, the catkins are lo looking lovely. Um, we talk about the structure, returning structure, yeah. um, on the common schemes we've done. And, and actually, we know from the studies we've done that, that birds are returning to that because it's got hidey holes, it's got nectar and pollen and yeah. insects and things like that. But it's that structural messiness. It's got all sorts of different heights to it now. Yeah that it didn't have when it was ubiquitous bracken cover. Yep. Um, the, um, I mean, in new woodlands, the, one of the birds that responds really fast is tree pipit. Yep. So tree pipits, they nest on the ground, um, but they like song perches. They kind of have this sort of, they sort of fly off the top of the perch and flutter back down to it. Right. Um, and they, I mean, as soon as you put a new woodland in, often tree pipits kind of just a, a straight back in there again. So well, I remember you telling me all about the, the on Bampton Common. There's a big common scheme there, and, and one of the major beneficiaries very early on was tree pipit, wasn't it? Yeah, in, yeah. in large numbers. Yeah, no, and they're a red-listed species. Um, so they're they're endangered. Yep, yep. So they're missing a bit like black grouse. They they need that young woodland stage. Yeah. Which in a you know more naturally functioning wilder landscape, you would be having popping up in lots of different places as a result of, I don't know, a, a big grazing event or a flood and bare ground being created and, and, and trees coming back up. Um, but generally speaking, you know, we haven't really had that happening. So it's these kind of created woodlands that are, uh, are providing a, a, a really valuable crutch for tree pipits, if you like. So, Lee, we've wandered and we've talked about farming and woodlands and Norway and uh, things like that. But just to wrap up, really, what's been a fantastic walk, and thanks very much for your time, is where, where's your next five years? Where are you going to spend that? And um, or what do you think your legacy is going to be? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Big a messier question. chunk of the Lake District, I hope, is going to be my legacy. Yep. Um, uh, you know, the land we're looking after is like 1% of the national park so it's, it's a pretty small patch but um you know we are we are making a difference here me and my colleagues and that's that's those differences are gonna be visible for for you know long after i'm around which is quite exciting but the next five years um you know we've got big projects in development we've got uh, an endangered landscapes program which is working across a much larger area than just our land holding here working with the lowther estate um, and lots of other farmers We've got our landscape recovery project as well, which is working with, with the sort of three other neighbouring farmers. Um, so it's about kind of expansion, really. I think the next five years, kind of trying to take the approach out um, into, into larger areas, building in more kind of connectivity in the landscape. Just over that fence there, actually. So that's our next door neighbour, Michael Wentworth Waits. Um, okay. You've worked with him. Well, we have He's worked with him, He's gone into a fantastic scheme, loads of wood pasture being created. Um, so yeah, it, it's. I, I hope it's going to be five years of riding the wave of a of a, <laughs> a revolution in land management in the Lake District. Um, you said you and your team 
you're employing quite a few people here now, aren't you? Yeah, we started when I started ten years ago. I was one of four, um, and we're just recruiting at the moment. But we're going to be uh, up to twenty-two people, I think. Um, working not not all directly it's about 15 of us that will be working at Horsewater and then there was a team of, of seven or eight or so um, who are going to be based out of Lauda working on that ELP project so you know there's lots of concern about changes in farming and land management and people worry that the schools will close and the pubs will shut down and it's going to be rural depopulation and and that's the specter of rewilding that people sometimes yeah. see I think ours is one of many examples that show that you know it doesn't need to be the case and we are clearly we're clearly we're different to the people that were here before but we're still people with kids in the schools and yeah. we're still parts of our communities. So, you know, no, you know, what we really need is diversity in all, all its shapes and forms. Diversity of approaches to farming, diversity of people in the community. Um, and yeah. Diversity of jobs and opportunities. Jobs. Yeah. 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 So we're, so yeah, I'm, I'm, if anything, that's one of the things I'm the most proud of that I've helped to create this really kind of vibrant um team of people that, that are you know really enjoying their work and and um contributing really valuable stuff to the area well i have to say i love my job and i'm bloody glad it's there yeah. <laughs> because i don't know it it fits my being very well and 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 uh and it, you achieve an awful lot Pete. well we try your, we try the, yeah you know, the connections you've made across the area are just so impressive. Lee's really taken on a lot at Horsewater and is starting to deliver at scale. The number of people he's got around him in that team is brilliant and they're doing some really funky stuff. So if you're ever up here and want to go for a walk, I really recommend it. There's loads to see. Wildlife is coming back and Lee is leading a fantastic team to help that recovery. Next week, we're meeting Paul Arkell. Paul is a great advisor to farmers on wildlife and agri-environment schemes. So he's a key individual in our work to try and bring that sector together with nature. And is a real treat, a real treat for the years. You've been listening to the Tree Amble podcast, written and produced by myself, Pete Leeson. My special thanks go to Pete Ord for his awesome production and mixing skills. And actually, Pete and Pete, both of us, we wrote the music, so thanks very much to Pete for his input there. The recording was on location with mixing and production at the studio at Sunbeams, part of the Annie Mawson Sunbeams Music Trust. Thanks also to all those lovely people who were interviewed, Simon Wakefield for the artwork, and my special thanks go to those who gave me the confidence and support to make this happen. Angela, Anne, Catherine, Tim, Tim, Kevin, Emma, Nick and Paul, thank you. <laughs>